Hi, I'm Otto. Welcome to Ellen Sarah's podcast. All right, so I would say that one of our most uh, engaged with episodes was our episode with Rabbi Rab- Leader. Rabbi Steve Leader, yeah. And yeah, he, yeah. he was one of our most popular episodes by far. I mean, not by far, because I oh. mean, I think, but uh, he just... No, people talked a lot about that episode. People talked a lot about that episode. I think so we, people, had, we, have, we have him back. This is our second episode with him. Very different than the first and equally as moving and emotional. And he is promoting a, a book of his, his new book called For You When I'm Gone. And it is really interesting. It's, well, you didn't it, finish the title. For You When I'm Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. Yeah. It's a it's really, it's a really wonderful book that he'll we'll let him explain it. But He's just phenomenal. I think it's important to just say too, I think you're going to hear like, if maybe you didn't listen to the first one and, oh, it's a rabbi. This is not an episode about religion. Mm-mm. This is an episode about life. Yeah. And there has to be Jewish to listen. No, there's just so many takeaways about- But you might want to be Jewish once it's over. You probably will want to be Jewish when it's over, but it is a very powerful episode and one of us may cry. One of us does cry. One of us does cry. Find out who. Find out who. Yay. Oh my god! My favorite. Oh, honestly, Long time no see. A lot of there's a lot of. Uh, I feel a lot of pressure because <laughs> the episode we did with you was very popular. I mean, very popular. I think I think we got a lot. Of, I converted. We converted a lot of people. You converted a lot of. You converted a lot of people. Are you guys getting a piece of the action on that? Yeah. We. What's our percentage? Like, how does that work? Uh, you get ten. Ten percent. Okay. Ten percent of all books sold. No, I think it's like 10%, oh, 10% of like- 10% of all Jews made. Yes. Oh, I'll, I want book sales too. Whatever. I feel like we sold some books for sure. Whatever Ooh. like the things are that you have to do to get into heaven, like we're in. <laughs> we did it. Um, First of all, how are you both? You doing okay? I mean, honestly- I mean, honestly, not great. We had a long weekend. We had a really bad weekend. We had a really bad weekend. <laughs> what happened? Oh, we had a family weekend that just, the wheels came off. The wheels came off. Like the whole family? Oh yeah, everybody everybody had a piece of the I drama. I think our family's like kind of fucked up. Oh, you just realized that. Yeah. That's scary that you're just realizing that. Yeah. I, I worry about what that's going to oh. feel like that it's just landing now. Yeah. You know why people don't get along with their families on holidays? Tell us. Cuz it's the only time they see them. Oh yeah. That's a good point. Right, it's really easy to get along with your family when you're on the phone or when it's like I think he yeah. just means basically anytime you see your family it's hard to get along. I know, yes. but we were <laughs> we were at this like amazing hotel and I kept looking around at all these families going like, how do they have, like, I'm like jealous, like jealous of other families. It just seemed like they were getting along and they were happy and they didn't have, they didn't look stressed. They looked like it looked easy. Yeah. You know, I think all families lead a double life. Mm-hmm. It's also very easy to look happy on a family vacation in a beautiful hotel. That's yes, and it's we all lead a double life with our families. You know, there's we all want the appearance of propriety and the appearance of functionality, and you know that doesn't mean we don't love each other. But 
loving each other and getting along well are not the same thing all the time. Very true. You know, and I don't know, people, I feel this way about birthdays. I grew up, I'm one of five kids and my parents had five kids before they were 30. And, you know, there were, we weren't poor, but we didn't, you know, we lived like it and we didn't really have a, a lot of money. And my parents were so overwhelmed, you know, five kids before turning 30 that birthdays were just not a thing in our house. You got a chocolate cake from mom and that was it. We didn't have birthday parties. We didn't have, you know. So then I, I get married to a woman from a family for whom birthdays were like a national celebration. And, you know, I, I realized that there was a lot of pressure involved in that for her and for everyone around her. You know, these expectations were so high. And I think we have those expectations often when we have these, you know, gatherings of our family tribe. And and mostly when you have those kinds of expectations, it's disappointing. Mm-hmm. I agree. I mean, in my mind, like every family is like, they all get along. They all love each other. They're all like, they're all like operating on a level that I'm like, why can't our family operate on that level? Like, why? Like, what is wrong with our family? I think, I think, look, I don't know the details, but I'll bet your family operating on a level very similar to theirs. It's just, you're more transparent and open about it. Uh, And I think most families are engaged in a pretty high degree of kabuki, Uh, you know, and that's, that's part of the reality of life. If I can get sort of religious on you for a second, okay? If you think about the families, the individuals and families in the Bible, the whole first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, is all about, you know, these first families. And what are these foundational stories that the authors of the Bible gave us? Okay, let's look at it. Eve deceives Adam. They get kicked out of paradise. Cain kills his brother Abel because of sibling rivalry and jealousy. Abraham has a baby with the maid and kicks them out into the desert to die. This is Hagar and Ishmael. And then he takes Isaac up a mountain and prepares to sacrifice him because he hears this voice from God telling him, sacrifice your son. Ultimately, it doesn't happen. Uh, And then you have Isaac being deceived by his twin sons, Jacob and Esau, taking advantage of the fact he's blind, and Jacob steals the birthright from his older brother Esau. Right, this family's a little and, more fucked up than ours. And, <laughs> and, yeah, and the mother's complicit. And then Jacob's sons, he has these sons, Joseph, his, who is like such a jerk at a young age, so narcissistic and immature, his brothers can't take it anymore, and they throw him into a pit and leave him for dead. You know, and and again, because of parental favoritism, uh, I've always I've always um, marveled at your the word for your company and your brand, this favorite daughter idea, because parental favoritism is the root cause of so much trouble in families. And no matter how hard we try as parents, I told you I'm one of five. 
it's always a real challenge and one that you can't meet successfully. So the Bible gives us these terribly flawed families. You want to know why? I think it's because, you know what we have to learn from perfect families? Nothing. Perfect families teach us nothing. The reason these stories still resonate is because they're about people like us. Mm-hmm. Like but you, you bring up a really interesting conversation, which is like our topic, which is, you know, I think about this. Like I have two girls and Aaron's like made comments to me before, like, oh, we all know who your favorite is, which like really fucking triggers me. Like, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I love my children equally. And it sends me down this like shame spiral of like, wait, is it obvious? Like, does it, does it, does it seem like I love this one more? But I think you bring up a really good point. When you show favoritism to one child or you do more for one than you do for the other, that is not a good road to go down. And it only creates conflict amongst siblings. And I never want to be, if I'm doing one thing for Josie, I'm going to do the exact same thing for Vivi. Or something at least um, similar, right? You know, because they're different. They're different. One kid, one kid wants hockey skates and the other one, you know, wants a violin. Okay. But, but to know that they are equally loved and supported. And of course we have to accept the fact, and I think that's why these foundational stories have so much wisdom. We have to accept the fact that we are going to fail too. We're going to fail. You know, this, um, I I don't know how quickly you want to transition into this this new book, but that's one I know, of I thought, we do. We do know we are here for you to promote your. No, story. no, but but that's one of the questions. What was your greatest failure? And you'd be amazed at how many of the responses have to do with parenting, or as siblings. Like, not to get too personal about our life, but if you look at all of our siblings, I'm sure like a big root cause of a lot of the stuff is feeling like, well, you had this that I didn't have, and I grew up differently than you, or you. Yes got yeah. this and I don't have this. And like you, know what? If you really it's look all, at and it's all true. Every child is raised under a different roof. It's so true. We had completely different childhoods. All of us had different childhoods and we all are operating differently as adults. Yeah. And we've had to learn to like stop arguing about the differences in our facts because we all think the other one's lying or misremembering the the truth. Mm-hmm. Um and the truth and the truth is we really did have different experiences. We really yes. like pulled different memories. We're shaped differently. And different parents. Like if I say this all the time when I gather families together at what I call clinically like an, an intake meeting to, to bring a family together to talk about a loved one who's died so that I can get my arms around the truth of that person's life to, to write a eulogy and also to help this family process this grief. The first thing I say is if I were with the two of you and I said, now, listen, I want to tell you something. I want you to take me back now to your earliest childhood memories of your dad. But before we do that, I want to explain something to you. I'm one of five. And if you put the five of us in a room and asked us to talk about our dad, in some ways we would be consistent. But in other ways, you would think we were raised by five different men. Because in a way we were. When when my oldest sister Marilyn was born, my parents were teenagers. And, and they had no money. When my little brother, Greg, was born, the prince, 
they they had made it and he and and but they also didn't pay much attention to to Greg or to me we're the last two because they were kind of done parenting they were over it so i think i was raised by wolves and 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 every child's raised under a different roof and if you if you can make peace with that it really helps your family become more whole also every kid is different like for Sarah with her two girls, one of them's easier than the other. So the one that's easier, Sarah kind of always has open arms to her. She always sees the best in her. She always ex- assumes that she has good intentions. The one that's more difficult, she's always ready to fight, right? So you end up treating your kids differently, not because you love them differently, but because when one kid is tougher than the other kid, you're always kind of like exasperated with them. You so- guys, I reached a boiling point this weekend with my 11-year-old where I wanted to like, grab her by her hair. Like, I'm just being honest. I didn't. I'm not a violent person. But I had a moment where I was like, oh my God, I have to hold myself back. I'm so mad at her. Mm -hmm. I have to hold myself back. And I was like, it freaked me out. Mm -hmm. Like, Well, there's, yes, there's also a mother-daughter dynamic as they get a little older, which is all about getting you to bite on the hook. And and it's really hard not to take that bait and bite down hard on that hook that they're dangling in front of you. Um, and I think, listen, the the best parenting decisions we made, my kids are 30 and 33, are the ones in which we consciously chose to honor their blueprint. And this happened, I don't think this will embarrass him, but... This this happened literally three days ago. I was having a very serious conversation with my son about his life, etc. And it it circled back to his childhood. And we were talking about his first year of kindergarten. He repeated kindergarten. In his first year of kindergarten, toward the end of the year, his teacher said to us, Well, the other children are interested in moving forward and learning how to write and do other things. And Aaron just wants to play blocks. What we did was keep him in the same school and have him do kindergarten again and ended up pulling him out in third grade. It took us all those years to realize that he, you know, was a square peg in a school that was a round hole. And those extra three years or four years did a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. Because they didn't understand him. Yeah. And I, nor did we. And I said to him, I think, I think one of the biggest parenting mistakes of mommies in my life was that we didn't turn to each other and say in that moment, well, let's find a school where they'll let Aaron play with blocks. I cannot tell you how much misery for the whole family that would have avoided. And and so, look, I've always wanted to write a book called How to Have Your Second Child First. <gasps> That's it's a great, a great title. title. It's a great title. Great but title. You, can't, you can't write the book. You can't. You have to have the experience. Well, it would so, be an interesting book like, like, 
going the book could be each chapter is a different sibling, uh, like uh, just different stories so that parents can read these and feel seen and feel like represented because it's so true. And I think like, you know, what you're talking about with the whole school thing, and especially in Los Angeles, we feel, I don't, we've, I know personally, I've had the thought of like, oh God, like, did I make the right decision? Is this school right? But then I go, well, what are my options? It's so competitive. The school well, well, you know something, like, your, your most important option, and forgive me for sounding like the, the old parent here, your most important option is to, is to know that if you put your kid in the right school, the brand is irrelevant. It is irrelevant. Nobody asks me where I went to college. Nobody. Nobody has ever asked me where I went to elementary school. Yeah. <laughs> okay? True. Nobody cares. And if I, if I could distill this down to a single imperative, it would be to honor your child. Honor who they are. Not who you imagined them to be or would like to force them to be because it causes nothing but misery. And of course, I'm not saying you don't discipline children and you don't teach them right from wrong. Of course you do all those things. But your child has a fundamental blueprint, a fundamental DNA. And if, if you don't get with it and embrace it, they know. They know. And they will feel unprotected and, and undervalued and dismissed and everyone suffers. So just celebrate, celebrate this, this child. Don't you celebrate. feel like you have to like honor the blueprint till the day you die? Like Aaron and I talk about this yes. all the time. I'm like, parenting never ends. Just because we're grown women with husbands and children, we still need our parents. Like, we need our mom and dad. And Aaron's always like, I mean, Sarah, we're grown up. I'm like, who gives a shit? I need my mom and dad. Like, it doesn't yeah. matter how We've old I am. We just had very different, like, lives. And so I needed my parents a lot when I was younger. And I really wanted a together family. And I really wanted parents, which we never had parents. We had two individuals that didn't speak right. to each other. I really right. wanted that. Sarah didn't care about that. Wait, I hold on. I think what we've realized through all the therapy and the podcast is that, of course, I wanted that. I just knew it wasn't an option. So I just pushed away and pretended like I didn't want it because it was easier to be like, well, I don't want it than being like, I want it, but I can't have right. it. Sarah well, just rejected it. Let's flip it. the lens, okay? It is true that we always want our parents, despite the fact that they may perpetually disappoint us. At some point, we learn to manage our expectations. But the notion that parenting never ends is really one that's powerful from the parent's perspective, not the child's. The child isn't really fully aware that parenting never ends. But I will tell you, I'll tell you a funny story with a bad word, okay? <laughs> so I have a, a friend, Betsy and I were out to dinner with two friends of ours we've known for, you know, 30 years. I did their wedding, great people. And we were catching up on our kids and they have two kids who are nothing like they thought they would be very challenging, et cetera. 
Um, one of them, one of them has transitioned. Um, you know, it's, it's hard for them. And my friend just leaned across the table and he looked at me and he said, it never fucking ends. And he was talking about parenting and worry. And you know what? I think that's a fact. I accept it. But I will tell you, I will tell you what else never ends. The profound love and purpose and meaning that we derive uh, from, from our children. It is so worth it. It is so worth it. It is a powerful healing kind of love. And I'm not there yet, but my friends who have grandchildren, they tell me it is the most fulfilling and satisfying of all human relationships. It's supposed to be, for sure. I mean, that's the goal in life. The goal in life is to live for your kids and obviously your career and yourself, but your children. And then the next phase is your grandchildren. Yeah. And, but I want to circle back to, because Allison even just texted me this. She was like, you know, I want to hear about this, is expectations on your parents. It's like, my therapist is what what he's been saying is like, you aren't going to be able to be happy until you you got to remove the expectations. And on one hand, I'm like, well, I don't accept that. Like, but but I just want to circle back to what you were saying okay. about the expectations. So let me let me tell you why I agree with your therapist. Your our listeners can't see this, but I'm I'm holding up a pen right now in front of the camera. Okay. You know, Sarah, I could talk to this pen all day long and ask it to become a spoon. I could take this pen with me to therapy and ask it to become a spoon. I could give this pen books about being a spoon. And I could do that for days, weeks, years, decades. And at a certain point, I'm the fool because this pen will never, ever become a spoon. Ever. So true. So true. You have to know that people are limited and you have to, I think that, you know, we have a big disconnect because I wanted, you know, the pen to be a spoon my whole childhood and all my teen years. And eventually, at some point in my adulthood, I decided to accept that certain people were pens and they were never going to be spoons. And I don't need the spoon anymore. That's right. I mean, do I need to convert to be able to be in therapy with you? Like, what, what do I need to do? Uh, 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 no, you're part of the family. Okay. Can we just make this like, like a, a regular thing? Like I need yes. to come over. I need like to have tea with you and your wife. Let's just have Shabbat together every Friday. That's a deal. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, Sarah, listen. This is particularly important, this idea of expectations and of of not expecting someone to become someone they have never been. 
You know, we were talking about honoring your blue, the blueprint of your children. Well, honoring it doesn't mean when it comes to your parents or others in your life, honoring the blueprint doesn't mean embracing it if it's toxic. And this is a very important point. One of the questions in the new book is, have you ever had to end a toxic relationship? And what did it teach you? Because those are the kinds of lessons you want your children to learn from you. Accepting someone for who they are sometimes leads to a more intimate and beautiful kind of love. And other times it leads to a very clear headed decision that this person is a cancer in my life and I need to, I need to cut them out. Well, we touched on that a little bit in the episode that we had with you before. We're just talking about reaching a point where in order to advocate for yourself and to show your children that you're advocating for yourself, sometimes you really do have to acknowledge that you need to cut off certain relationships. I agree with that. I've been saying that. Like, I I feel like just because someone is family does not mean that you need to make space for them in your life if it's not serving you. I don't, I don't believe right. that. Right, and then I feel like, how do you just, like, cut off family? Like, for me, I guess, I, you know what it is? I guess because we don't actually contrary to how people talk about us, like you have the biggest family, we actually don't have a big family. Like, you know, like where, do you know what I'm saying? Our We've family been related not, to a lot of people that we didn't ask to be related to and we're yeah. not related to them anymore, so. But like our family is literally like Jordan, Tom, Simon, his family now, like Tommy and his family, dad, you know, our dad has a new kid, his new wife, but like, that's it. Like we don't really have, no, it's, but it's, like the way that families have like the cousins and the aunts and the uncles and like we don't have that. Like my children will have that, but like I don't, I don't feel like if I were to have like a bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, that there would be like. I guess I'm just really feeling like I don't have a big family. And you want one? Yeah. You know, um, I do have a big family, but. I left Minnesota when I was 17 and all my siblings stayed or returned. So I do have a big family, but we also have a society that's so mobile and so bifurcated and spread out that even people with large families rarely have a large family, if you know what I mean. And, you know, there aren't that many tribal gatherings anymore. There aren't that many pilgrimages anymore. Um, and so again, I think that it really, ironically, I think comes down to these two uh, seemingly oppositional forces. You know, there's so much duality in life. I think all of life really is about making peace with duality, with the tension between things. And there's a tension between autonomy, individuality, self-preservation on the one hand and sacrifice on the other. And sacrifice is a counterintuitive idea, particularly, by the way, in the Bible. The Hebrew word for sacrifice 
is korban. Okay, now I'm going to get back to that in a minute. We tend to think of sacrifice as a net loss. He paid the ultimate sacrifice. Oh, she made so many sacrifices. Okay, we tend to think of it as a negative. But the Hebrew word for sacrifice, korban, is the same root word as to be close or to draw near. It's the same word for relatives, krovim. It's the same word to gather people together, kiruv. So, well, let's try this experiment, okay? I want to ask each of you a question. Okay, um, Aaron, what are the two most important things to you in your life? People or things, the most important in your life? Um, I mean, it really is my husband and my family. Okay. That's it. And what's in second place? Your family is in first place. We're including Simon. Okay. In what's in second place? Honestly, my the second place is like living up to potential. Mm. Okay. Got it. All right. Sarah? Sarah? I guess number one, obviously, my kids, family, siblings, parents. That's number one. If I lost all of the that whole all those people on a plane, I'd kill my, you know what I mean? Like, like there's nothing else to live for. You think you could get rid of a couple of them though? I mean, probably a few, but you know, we won't name them. And then I guess number two is work. And I'll tell you why. Because work symbolizes financial freedom. Security. Security. And yes. And I grew up with a mother who Mm -hmm. did not have financial freedom. She was at the mercy of a child support mm-hmm. check and and all those things. And I'm so terrified to live mm-hmm. like that at the mercy of, will my check arrive? Will I be able to whatever? So I, I put so much importance on work because it symbolizes like so much more to me. Now, I get that more than you could ever know. Now, what are... Let's let's go back to Aaron. What are the two things you've sacrificed the most for in your life? I've sacrificed a lot for my family, for sure. Mm-hmm. Sacrificed a lot for my family. And have you sacrificed a lot to fulfill or reach your potential? Yes. In a lot of ways, I haven't reached my potential because of sacrifices I've made. For your family, you mean? Yeah, for my family, okay. for people, but, yeah. But, okay, got it. And Sarah, what have you sacrificed the most for in your life? The two things you've sacrificed the most for? I think, I hate to call it a sacrifice, but I think that- That's going to be my point, but go on, answer the question. I think I really disappeared from my potential for many, many, many years because I was focused on building- a unit that I didn't grow up with. You sacrificed for your family. Yeah. And your work, I'm guessing, would yeah, be second? totally. Okay, now, what have we learned? When I asked you what the two most important things in your life are, they turn out to be exactly the same two things you've sacrificed the most for. The things that matter most to us are the things we sacrifice the most for. 
But is that good or bad? I think it's beautiful. I think, I think that love, one of the questions in the book is what is love? How do you define love? How do you define something that is essentially beyond definition? Mm-hmm. Right, because having kids stops you from working, but, those are the, but the, that's the most important thing to you. Well, remember I talked about this duality, this tension, right? And almost all of the answers to the question, what is love? had to do with sacrifice, with giving. That that is the highest expression of love and oneness and meaning. And so this is this duality that we're talking about, this tension. I, I want to just take care of myself and live my life. and da, da, da. But I really, I really don't because I want love and I want to be close. Now this takes us back to why we have to cut certain people out of our lives. We have to cut certain people out of our lives because no matter how much the sacrifice, it doesn't matter. We can't and don't feel close to them because they are not capable. They are not capable of reciprocating, of appreciating, right? They, that it's never enough. So all of these things, you know, family, relationships, work, they all circle around this idea of meaning and love, and they all require sacrifice. You know, someone once said to me, the, the successful marriage is one where each person goes in giving, planning to give 60, gives 60 and receives 40% back. And if both partners behave that way, Think about that. If both partners are willing to give more than they take, that's going to be a great marriage. Okay. Uh, I live in these sheets. They're my favorite sheets. We always talk about I don't know what else, I don't know what new things we can say about bowl and branch. It's funny, just the other day, mom was like, you know that you bought me bowl and branch sheets and then you took back the gift and you put them on your guest room bed. Oh. And I said, yes, but you're the only person that sleeps in the guest room bed. So I technically, they're still for you. And she said, that's not really how gifting works. No, it's not. Because she has a bed at home. She has a bed at her house. She could probably use those sheets in. They are the best. They are organic. They are 100% organic cotton. They are superior to every sheet. I've ever used in my life. The pillow covers, the comforter covers, they're so soft. You don't think you know you what else? You don't even need to think about thread count. It's it's just all but you about know what their else? quality. It gets but they get better over time. The more you wash them, the softer they get. They are just, just it's really hard to find soft, good, organic, clean sheets. And yeah. I would say it's really bowl and branch or nothing. It really is. It really is bowl and branch or nothing. And so uh, we've always, we always have had a very good deal for everybody and people, friends of ours who don't even listen to the podcast use our deal. All I know, the time. but you know what? I think the discount went away and people to this day still write me because we haven't done an ad for them in a while going, wait, what's the code? Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. So now we have a new one. So it's back. So you're going to get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code foster 15 at bowlandbranch.com. That is bowl and branch, B-O-L-L and branch.com promo code foster 15. 
I, I went on and bought, I actually used our code and went and bought Osea products the other day because I'm sick of asking to get them for free. And yeah, I ran out of them. Yeah, you can only ask for free for so many times. So many times. So now I'm like, just using my code because yeah. I personally, my favorite items, I use the anti-aging hand cream all the time. I always have it in my purse. I hate having dry hands and dry fingers. Uh, and I use the um, the the like heavy thick moisturizer. It's the advanced protection cream. So really, that moisturizer is amazing for under makeup so as like a makeup primer. Good. They've been creating clean and vegan cruelty free products since 1996. They are from Malibu. Uh, everything in the line is perfect. All the body creams, all the face creams, all the serums. I'm just you really do with all notice a difference in your skin when you take a couple weeks of really just doing um, clean products on your skin. You really do give yourself 10 days of just this stuff and you will notice a difference. I agree. So find your new skincare and body care favorites at oseamalibu.com and get a special discount just for our listeners. You get 10% off your first order site-wide with the promo code FIRST at oseamalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and on orders over $50, get free shipping. You are going to want everything there. Go to oseamalibu.com. That is O-S-E-A malibu.com and use the code FIRST. Well, we've really steered you in, back to things about us, which I really like. Um, but it does all tie in. I don't know if people are aware of what this episode is supposed to be about, but it's kind of all encompassing because it's just a life conversation. Um, yeah, it's thought provoking. And I think. the book that you wrote that we're, we're talking about, which Sarah's just like shook now. Uh, is Yeah, called- listen, I think we're really fucked up. <laughs> Well, I, here's here's the good news and the bad news, Sarah. No more than anyone else. Mm-hmm. I know, but really? Yeah, really. I think that it's just harder for Sarah because she's having a delayed um, awareness of this stuff. Because when you, it's not that you didn't want parents, all these things you did, but you, you were in denial for so long. Yeah. You rejected it. You ignored it. You put it off that you wake up halfway through your life and you're like, Oh, it just dawned on me all these things that I'm angry about. And and oh, so God. it's just a delayed reaction. I just did it when I was 14 and she's doing it now. But I don't think you can reject something that wasn't there. It's not like I was rejecting no, this no, no. harmonious no. family. I mean, I was rejecting you a can, really yeah. You can make peace with the missing pieces. Right? And and I will say something. I you may feel like you're far behind. Um, I had as uh, damaging a childhood as anyone. Well, not as anyone, but more than most people and more than most people realize. I didn't start trying to figure it out till I was 55 years old. And I was in a car accident and had to have spinal surgery and got addicted to opioids for a little while. And had chronic, horrible pain. And I, you know, the Talmud, the rabbis of the Talmud say, if you are visited by pain, examine your life. And I didn't get that message to examine my life till I was 55 years old. And I'd done plenty of collateral damage because of it. So you may feel like you're behind, Sarah. I'm telling you, whenever it happens, it's right on schedule. And, That's important. And, That's important for people to hear. Because yes. I do think a lot of our listeners are like, I missed the train. I missed the boat. Like, I'm no. damaged and I can go to therapy, but what's that even going to do? Because I'm already, this is who I am. 
it's I would say two things again on the this is like we should call this this episode dualities. <laughs> um I would say it's never too late and don't wait. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's both, right? It's never too late. Don't wait. And in fact, this this book for you when I am gone, I was asked by a a talk show host the other day to summarize the book in two words because it's about writing a legacy for your loved ones for now and for when you're gone and and examining your life and seeing if your life really matches with what you say is important to you. So I was asked to summarize the book in two words and the two words were it I it came up came out right away. Don't wait. You know, don't wait to answer these questions. Don't wait to tell your loved ones these answers. And don't wait to ask yourself, am I living my truth? Mm-hmm. This book is, is which is called For, For You When I'm Gone, is about examining and having the conversations and asking questions and sharing how you feel about several different things so that you can actually leave what you call is an, as an ethical will. Can you explain what that is? Because a lot of people are, you know, I always think about, you know, we want to live to be a hundred years old with the person that we love, but I always think like, fuck, what if something horrible happens? I should like take a video of myself saying something to Simon, like all the things that I would want to say to him. What if something tragic happens? I would want him to have that. But is it like morbid yeah. and dark and how do I make sure he finds it? But I always think like there's so many questions you have for the people you love that you wish you could leave something yeah. behind. Yes. Yes. So Jews have been doing this for a thousand years, 11th century, Italy and France, creating this thing called an ethical will. Here's why it's necessary, okay? Almost everyone at a certain age has an estate plan, like a material will, like who who gets the money and the stuff, right? But what I've learned after so many years of helping families through loss and through the death of my own father is that the money's nice, It doesn't really make people feel any better. It doesn't carry people through loss. It doesn't guide and instruct them through life. And nobody wants most of your crap. You know, we spend our lives working so hard to make money, to buy things that when we die, nobody wants. One of the saddest images of my life in my mind still hard, is seeing seeing my father's stuff in a heap on the basement floor after he died because nobody, not even goodwill, wanted it. So, okay, we're leaving our stuff, but that's like leaving behind a picture of food for your loved ones to eat. It's not, it's not nurturing. It's not sustaining. And so I, this book is, is a way to help all of us create a different kind of will that I call an ethical will. Some people call it a legacy letter. 
where you literally leave for your loved ones something much more important than your paperweight collection or your fountain pen collection or whatever, your shoes or your bags, which are your words. You know, let's, sorry to recircle back to Hebrew linguistics again, but the Hebrew word for thing, davar, is the same word for word. In Hebrew, you can't differentiate between word and thing. It's the same word, meaning words are of real, concrete, material, lasting value. Okay, so this book, it has 12 questions in it that I answer and that I also invited other people to answer, all kinds of people. Young, old, all genders, all races, um, five or six different religions, famous people, um, people who wipe people's butts and change diapers in nursing homes, people, and people who are famous for good things and people became famous for a terrible thing. Every, young, old, you name it. And these questions, these 12 questions, these 12 chapters, they're the questions I ask families when I'm trying to understand the truth of this of the person who died that I'm going to be eulogizing. You know, obituaries, they tell you the facts, not the truths. The fact, the fact, my obituary will say this, the fact that I was born on June 3rd in 1960 in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, that doesn't tell you anything about me. So this book is a way for us to think deeply about the truths of our life. That's all that matters. And, and then articulate those truths in a way that will really nourish our loved ones when we're gone. But more importantly, it's an exercise in what I call alignment. After you read these chapters and think about your own answers, the real opportunity is for you, even more so than your loved ones when you're gone, because you, you get to ask yourself this really important question, which is, am I living my truth? Am, are my professed values, the things I say I believe in, the same as my lived values? Am I in alignment or am I out of alignment? Now, we're all a little out of alignment, right? But am I dramatically out of alignment? And if I am, if I am, right? Again, you know, to, to kind of summarize the book in two words, if I am out of alignment, don't wait. Address it right? Live your truth. Don't just write about it. Don't just talk about it. This is an opportunity to live it. And I can tell you that I don't have a single material possession of my father's that, uh, that's of any material value. I just, nothing. I have his hat because it reminds me of walking with him in Palm Springs. 
And I have this. I'm going to show you something. I have one of his tools. This this old ruler. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because I remember working with him on Saturdays. That is a cool tool. Oh. And it just reminds me, too, of what a like straight shooter, mm -hmm. no bullshit guy he was, you know. But it's and, really the memory attached to the thing. That that's right. Exactly right. These are about times we spent together and the lessons learned. I think this book is too, I mean, for, we have a lot of young women that listen to this podcast and I'm sure some young women are like, I don't want to think about a will right now. I don't even have kids or, you know, I have kids, but they're young and I'm 30 and I'm not, I don't want to think about dying. I don't want to think about a will, blah, blah, blah. But, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that there's something so profound about this being a life exercise, even if you're not dying for 50 more years. It's Sarah, you're right, because it's not a book about dying. It's a book about living. It's a book about living. And, yeah. and that's the thing for all, for everybody listening. Like this is almost a guide to like encourage and assist you in living your best life so that when it comes to the time of you being gone a hundred years from now, 50 years from now, 60 years from now, like you've done the work. Because in a lot of ways, when you have to, when you say it out loud, it sort of forces you to live up to it, right? Like if somebody said to you, what's the most important thing to you? You're not going to say status and friendship and money. Some You're gonna people might say status. Well, it would be status but for a lot of people. But they wouldn't admit it. They wouldn't say it, yeah. right? They would say what they want to be the truth. But then if they have to yes. examine their words, they might go, hmm, I say my family is the most important thing, but the thing I'm prioritizing is status. Exactly. Now, I'll give you a really stark example. The last question, there are two final questions in the book. The first is, what do you want your epitaph to be? What do you want on your headstone when you die? Now, you know I spend a lot of time in cemeteries. And I'm always struck by the following. Every time I walk through the cemetery, I'm amazed by this. And it's a powerful reminder. Despite the fact that we're all unique individuals and we lead unique lives, almost every single headstone says exactly the same thing. Because when you have to distill a person's life down to 15 characters per line and four, and four lines total, do you know what they all say? Who they were loved by? Loving... Wife, mother, grandmother, father. sister, friend. Yeah. Loving husband, father, grandfather, brother, friend. Not your GPA, not where you went to college, not your zip code, not your net worth, not your grandchild's GPA, not your resume, none of it. Yeah, when Steve Jobs was dying, he wasn't saying like, oh, I wish I had have actually owned more Apple. He was saying, I wish I spent more time with my kids. Right now. Don't wait for this realization. When you have to confront this question and really write it out, it's a real opportunity to straighten your life out. Yep. Now, the final, the final question in the book, and I always ask this at these intake meetings with families. This is always my final question. So let's, we'll pretend that I'm in the room with the two of you and, and we're preparing for a loved one's funeral. After this long conversation, this big stew of stories and all the truth telling about the 
the flaws and the beauty, I would then say, you know, Sarah and Aaron, I'm, I'm going to, I want to ask you a question. It's a hard question, but you're the two best people in the whole world to answer it. And the question is, let's assume that he was in the room listening to this whole conversation we've just had. I mean, in a way he has been, but literally hiding under the desk, listening to everything we've been talking about for the past couple hours. And then you guys get up and leave. And he comes out, sits across the couch from me. And he says, Rabbi, I heard what the girls had to say. It was all true. I don't dispute a single word of it. But this is what I want you to say tomorrow in my funeral to my family and loved ones and friends who will be there. In other words, if he could get, if you could get up there at your own funeral and look out at the people you love and say something, what would it be? What would your final blessing be? Because if you can get down to that level of essentialism and love, you are going to give them a gift that will hold them for the rest of their lives. What makes you emotional about it, Sarah? I think it's just like, it just brings up unresolved shit with people you love. Not just one person, but multiple people. It's just the idea of like, this is how I feel, but you feel differently, mm. you know? And it's just, mm. it's like that thing. You just don't want to leave anything unsaid with anybody, with anybody. You just never know. This isn't about like just anyone you care about in your life. Don't wait. Don't wait. Do you feel like your truth and other people's truth about you doesn't align? Well, I for sure feel like I'm misunderstood mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. many well, people. Yeah. The, your intention you, is different. Wait, wait, wait. I want to be sure I understand. Are you saying that you, you did not understand others or that you felt misunderstood by others or both? No, I think people's, people's ideas of who I am and why I am the way I am do not align with the truth. Ah, well, listen, Sarah, it, you are the author of the truth. Yeah. You have the opportunity to ask yourself these questions and to answer them from your heart and to live by them. But it's really crazy what it does to, you know, it's like really the way, I don't even know what I'm trying to say. But the point is, is I'm not even, just these conversations, the book, obviously, it just, I can see how it can lead to growth. Not even yes. take dying out of the mix or any of that. It's not really about dying. It's not about dying. It's 
these conversations make you want to live different, you know, which I guess is the goal. And you know, book. I'll tell you how I think it, it kind of fits into the larger ethos too in America right now, which has to do with the pandemic. And none of what I'm about to say is worth a million lives. But the pandemic, I think, has caused a lot of us to reevaluate our lives. And, you know, because it stripped away so much of what we thought was important in order to reveal so much that was hiding in plain sight that actually is important. Like dinner together, like baking together, like taking a walk, you know, uh, like getting out of the car. It's so crazy you're saying this. I was driving home yesterday. I was like driving by the water and I was like, and I feel like kind of guilty admitting this, but I was driving and I was like, I miss the pandemic. Like I miss mm, the global absolutely. fucking pandemic when the world was suffering and I miss it. I miss it because life was simple. It was just simple. And there was no pressure to be anywhere else. There was no pressure to be anywhere. There was just no pressure on anything. All you needed to focus on was cleaning your groceries and cooking a new recipe, cooking a new recipe and making sure the kids are fed and the kids understand what's going on. Yeah. And you just, focused on the things that are on our headstone when we die. No one's fucking Instagramming. We're all just like, even just you saying like the, the walks. It is really interesting, the, like everybody going on walks in in the pandemic because it's something that a lot of us were not doing before. And the idea of going and taking a walk with a friend and making time for that or taking a walk with family, it's really special thing to do. You have your phone away, you go on a walk. It is not yeah. something we do in our lives where even a hike, you can't really breathe. So you're not really like talking to each other because you're really out of breath. But like going on a walk with someone is such a beautiful way to connect. But I felt so guilty feeling it because the reality is, and I'm sure you have an opinion about this, but like the way that we experienced the pandemic is really coming from like such a place of privilege. You know, it's like, like okay. most people okay. didn't get to have that experience. Most people are like crammed in a one bedroom where it's not glorious to be home with your family. It's a fucking nightmare. Yes, but... All right, I have a couple thoughts about that. First of all, your dark little secret is everyone's dark little secret who went through the pandemic with a roof over their head and food in the fridge and a computer on their desk, okay? We all have this dark little secret. And we all had fear and worry and, and loved ones dying. And we've felt the tension in our society. But we ought not to come out of that very instructive experience empty-handed. Don't come out of hell empty-handed. Don't go back to your default setting. And that's where the sacrifice is required but it, it's there's a moment of clarity in our country now. As confused as everyone feels things are, there are also there's also a new level of clarity in people's individual lives and choices. And the book will provide that clarity. And then the question is, do you do you have the courage to live that truth? 
Okay. And you do. I, I don't know you well, but I know you well enough to know that you do. And, uh, and, and hopefully you will. I'm becoming that like delusional person that whenever I see people on Instagram or, uh, you know, if I'm somewhere and someone's talking about like athletic greens, I'm like, oh, excuse me. It's like I, this delusional person that thinks I have anything to do with the company except for just reading ads on our podcast. I know. You but think you're like the owner. You're no, like, it's, it's like you like want a commission off of all it's that. It's weird. I feel so invested in the business when in reality, I'm just a podcast reader. Because like ad reader. they probably get ads on a lot of podcasts. No, I know. I know. But I feel very invested in yeah. the brand. I We've turned a lot of people onto Athletic Greens just because it's so hard to have the time or the energy to fully nourish yourself the way that your body needs it. We are all so depleted and Athletic Greens has come up with a way for you to truly give yourself everything you need in one scoop. Yeah. It, so it is really impressive. It's pretty incre- uh, impressive. One scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, uh, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood, and more in truly one serving. Yep. Tom is currently addicted to it. He no way. It now. Yep. Because of the, because of us? Yeah. Oh, my God. So mm-hmm. he's every morning, and he notices a difference? Every morning. He loves it. I love And you know mom, too. Didn't know that. Yep. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D. That's a full year of vitamin D. And five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash foster. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash foster to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. Um, Bev, we love talking about Bev because we have been, well, first of all, we're investors in Bev. So we believe in it so much that we actually wrote checks into the company. It is a female founded brand. It is delicious wine in canned, canned wine that has zero sugar and only three carbs and only a hundred calories per serving. They have an amazing varietal that has all the different flavors. My personal favorite is the blue uh, can, which Mine is too. Sauvignon Blanc. That's your favorite? Yes. Okay. Simon's favorite is the yellow, which is Pinot Gris. Um, they also have rosé, which is really good, and Pinot Noir. Um, they recently launched Sparkling Rosé. They're just delicious. They're so good. Every time anyone comes over to our house and tries it, they can't believe how good it is. And it's all packed into this like small little can. It's really cute. Um, and you can buy it online. You can um, get two-day shipping straight to your door, and shipping is always free. And it's just good to have at your house when you have people over, and people always want to come over and they want to have a drink, and you don't want to open up a whole bottle of wine. So it's perfect. People come over, and you're like, let me open up a can of Bev. It's no mm-hmm. commitment. You get one drink, then you don't have to have a bottle of wine that gets you know wasted. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've worked out a special deal for everyone. Receive 20% off your first purchase, plus free shipping on all orders. I suggest trying their best-selling Ladies' Night variety pack so you can check out all the delicious... You're very Vanna White right now. Sorry. Okay, I'm reading word for word. I know, but it doesn't work for you. Okay, get the variety pack and then you can try all the different flavors and pick which one you like the best. Go to drinkbev.com slash foster or just use the code foster at checkout to claim the deal. That is D-R-I-N-K-B-E-V dot com slash foster. Bev can also be found at retailers nationwide, including Target, Total Wine, BevMo, and more. But you know what's so interesting is like in your book, the new book, you talk a lot about saying yes to life. And like 
a lot of the reasons why I love the pandemic was in a way I was saying no to life. I could just oh, keep I my- I disagree. I disagree with you. I'm sorry. No, tell me. I think you were, during the pandemic, you were saying yes to a, a life that of you- Of substance. That you, that you were, for whatever reasons, not able to live before the pandemic. That was that is real life. Yeah, you okay, were just being walking a mom with your and friends, a sister and a friend, walking with your friends, taking care of your kids, doubling down on your relationships and your family and with your sister and 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 developing. By the way, these walks are also about spirituality. They're also about being out in nature and being quiet and letting nature come to you instead of being so damn aggressive in the world. It was like a two year Shabbat. Right. So true. And that, that is real. That is real. There's nothing healing about staring at our phone, but standing outside barefoot on the ground is so healing. It's why you always want to go sit outside and like get in the sun. You always say you want vitamin D because it's like, it calms you to go sit outside. We don't do you it. Know, my son, my son is now living with his girlfriend whom he, they knew each other when they were small children, but whom he really met because of a match on a, on a app during COVID. And it was so beautiful to watch their courtship because it was so old fashioned. They, they went to the park, they had picnics, they sat in the backyard at their parents' houses and, and talked, you know, they went for walks. They, it, it was beautiful. It was so quaint. You had to keep six feet apart, just like the old yeah. days. <laughs> I don't know how long that lasts. But. <laughs> no, but it's true. There's like, it's like the world is sort of forcing us back to the original way that we would connect with each other. And that's why we miss it. That's because it, that's, yeah. it's real. And, and you know, the, one of the, the first question in the book is what's your greatest regret? Because success doesn't teach us very much. Failure and regret teach us a lot and they'll teach our, loved ones a lot. So I started with regret and the editor said, how did you come up with regret as first? How did you come up with these 12 questions in this order? And I said, 35 years and 15 minutes, because I know to start with the question that opens us up and creates vulnerability. Now, here's what's really interesting about regrets. Most people regret most, not what they did, but what they didn't do. There are two kinds of sins. There's the sin of commission, the things we do, and sins of omission, the things we could have and should have done, but didn't. And it's the latter category that troubles people the most, particularly when they get to the end of their life. You know, I have a, a really great saying that I share with people often who are having a hard time moving forward, which is, I have given up all hope of a better past. Okay, meaning we have these regrets about the things we didn't have, didn't do, didn't say. But at some point, that is is really powerful fuel for the future and a really powerful lesson for our loved ones. 
And we do find a way for the, you know, the regrets for the things we did. Most of us find a way to forgive and be forgiven in life. But for the things we didn't do that we can never get back, that that's a great teacher, a great teacher. You know, I, I grew up with a um, somewhat like your feelings, uh, Sarah, about money and uh, self-reliance. I, I grew up with a really profound fear of poverty. And then my father died. I inherited this fear of poverty from my father. There was always, you know, disaster just waiting around the next corner. My father died. I reckoned with that legacy. And I, my, my relationship with money is different now. Mm-hmm. If my father saw the kind of money I'm spending building a little cabin in Joshua Tree in the middle of the desert right now, he would come back to haunt me. But in a way, in a way, his life and his death taught me that lesson. And, and I feel great about it. So it's very instructive, these regrets. What we didn't have is very instructive in terms of what we really should be giving to others. And the most powerful message, I think, is that we're not locked in yesterday's ways. You, can, you can't repair the past, but through your own parenting, through your own marriages, through your own work, you can really change the future. You talk a lot about happiness and like the communal aspect of happiness. And what does that mean? Well, like in the book, again, there's joy, there's happiness and there's joy and they're not the same thing. There's a reason we have two different words for them. Also two different words for happiness and joy in the Bible. Happiness is something we can experience alone. You know, ice cream, I don't know, uh, winning the lottery. These things make us happy. But joy is a completely different level of fulfillment and meaning. And joy, as I put it in the book, is the fruit of a very slow growing tree. I'll give you an example. Think about yourselves. Let's see. Who got married first? Uh, me. Sarah, I'm not technically I know you're married, not technically but, married, but, but me. who like? Yeah, me. All right. Jordan got married first, our little sister. No, but out of you and me. Oh. Me. Okay. All right. So you were at the wedding in Tennessee, right, Sarah? My wedding. Yep. Okay. And you had this feeling of watching your sister be married. Now, compare that to the feeling of watching one of your friend's sisters, someone else's sister, get married. You don't feel much. You don't feel much. It's more like... If I'm just uh, being honest, it's kind of like, oh, this is nice. Mm -hmm. She looks beautiful. But you don't really feel anything. This is nice. She looks beautiful. My feet hurt. I'm cold. When can we we leave? Right? I mean, mean, rough, but true. Mm -hmm. Okay? Now... That's the difference between happiness and joy. You're happy for your friend. Mm. You are feeling joy when it's your sister. Why? 
because you have a lifetime of relationship. Yeah. And you have a lifetime of community. Also, because we didn't know if it would ever happen. <laughs> so it was a real <laughs> mixture of relief you know, it's, and joy. It's <laughs> fair. It's it's the fruit of sacrifice again. Yeah. yeah. Joy. Joy. Why are you so happy at a child's graduation? Because you got that kid through school. That's why. All the carpooling and the lunches and the teacher conferences. It's all the years of, <laughs> me, of putting in the work of me crying to you and being oh. on bad dates and all that. It's all those yeah. years that made it that is, moment. Joy that's totally. right. And so that's what leads to joy. Happiness. It's nice. It's surface. It's like being, it's like being at your friend's sister's wedding, <laughs> but it's not the same as joy. And if we can understand this, then we can start living in ways that bring us more joy rather than ways that just bring us more happiness. So how do you I, tap I, into that? Sorry. Well, community. Community is a major, major part of it. Okay. You, you can be happy alone. You can't have joy alone. Mm -hmm. You have to experience it together. You have to be in relationships. So community is number one and sacrifice is number two. Uh, didn't we see, didn't we meet the founder of Noom recently? No. So we went to this conference and we saw on the list of attendees the Noom founder and we were like, oh my God, out of everybody at this conference, we we're like, we need to meet the Noom founder. He was there. We never got to him. Never got to we him. We never got to him. But we that is who we wanted to meet because- Noom is all the rage right Noom now. Noom is all the rage. Everyone's talking about it because it works. We have friends who have used it, uh, people that we have never met, but who have written us saying they use it. And they're really seeing a difference in their health. Because they use psychological approaches that are based in scientific principles like cognitive behavior therapy, which helps people just better understand their relationship with food. It's not just about food. It's like, what's your relationship to food? But also Where Noom doesn't believe in restricting what you eat, which I think that is a huge um, shift in the whole like dieting Yeah, because diets get a bad rap. Yeah. But really the goal is just to be your healthiest, best self. And they help you kind of figure out what your relationship to food is because food is meant to be medicine and food should be, you know, something positive in your life, not something that you eat when you're emotional, you, when you're upset or you feel bad about yourself. It should be something that's like, yeah. you know, a positive relationship and yeah. they help you get to that. Yeah. And uh, people swear by it. They really love it. So start building better habits today. Sign up for your trial at noom.com slash foster. That is N-O-O-M dot com slash foster to sign up for your trial. Oh, this is so funny. We are doing um, for the first time ever an ad for <gasps> Beauty Counter. Okay. I was on the phone one hour ago with our sister, Jordan Foster. She was saying, I need to buy new makeup. What do I get? And I said, my favorite eye makeup palette is Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter? It's also so funny good. because we are friends with Greg, the founder of Beauty Counter. And she mm -hmm. said to me a few times, like, why are you not talking about Beauty Counter? I'm like, why are you not sponsoring the podcast? Mm -hmm. So you so shamed her into it. I like I that. Wonder if, I wonder if there is a connection or if there is not a connection mm -hmm. because we are huge Beauty Counter fans. It's a great, great, great clean brand. And we they want us to talk about the... Um, the Dew Skin um, Tinted Moisturizer, which has SPF of 20. It's also sheer lightweight coverage. Um, all their stuff is so I would good. go as far to say that you can really, you could just go full full steam with Beauty Counter with uh, 
concealer, eyebrows, mm-hmm. cheeks, all of it. Yeah, all their products are so, so, yeah. so good. By the way, we have a huge discount. Which um, we do have a huge, yeah, it's a very big discount. I feel like discount. they never do 30%. Um, and they also want to talk about us to want to talk about the mascara, which is obsessively clean. It's very important to use clean brands for your mascara, you guys. This stuff is in, getting in your people, eyes. People don't fully understand the importance of clean makeup yet. I, I think we're getting there and it's 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 what we try to educate you guys on how important it is. Not shaming you, but because it's I don't do everything clean. Aaron does most things clean. I don't because it's yeah, just not I like realistic. To shame a little bit. It's not realistic for me. But, but just try it because it really works. The, their mascara yeah. gives you very long, intensely full lashes. Um, so we can't say enough good things about this brand. Right now, Beauty Counter is exclusively offering our listeners 30% off your first order, which is a lot. In case That's actually the biggest I think we've ever had uh, for a brand. In case you needed another reason to switch to a clean routine with the Dew Skin and the Think Big All-in-One Mascara, visit beautycounter.com and use the promo code FOSTER at checkout. That is promo code FOSTER for 30% off your first order. Someone wrote in a question on social that I thought was a very good question. Yeah. How to trust God's timing without feeling like I'm sitting back and doing nothing. Mm. Yeah. 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 Well, I've always believed that life is a partnership between us and God. And by the way, if you're uncomfortable with the word God, you can say between us and destiny, between us and fate, between us and nature. That's why power. That's why I love Judaism. Whatever. Yeah. Because yeah. it just I, lets I you whatever have whatever higher you, power you want. Judaism's like, however we need to get you there, just get there. You can get well, there in the I way that you feel connected God, to. Listen, there's seven different names for God in the Bible. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of manifestations of whatever it is we recognize is greater than us. I don't care what you call it. I really don't care. It doesn't matter. The reason people are uncomfortable with God is because when you say God in English in America, you feel like you sound like an evangelical Christian. Yep. And if you're not an evangelical Christian, that's not a that doesn't feel right. Okay. Call it whatever you want. But I have always considered us to be in a partnership with that force, that power. And both parties have responsibilities. It's like that old joke, the guy's praying to God, like, God, why didn't I win the lottery? And God says, you have to buy a ticket. (laughs) You know, you got to do your part, dude. Got to do your part. So you got to go on all those dates, Aaron. You got to go on all those crappy dates for destiny to unfold. We're partners. We're partners. And it took a lot of like, I always say that it, it wasn't like by accident that a great person put themselves in my life. It was me really working hard to figure out what I was doing wrong. How do I fix my shit? How do I dive myself into work? How do I become more valuable in society? How do I grow and like, you know, grow out of my hit, my past and my childhood? Like it took so much work for me to actually be available to even see the good person standing in front of me. Yes. And that's that we're partners in creating our lives. We're partners with God and partners with others in creating our lives. Because I have I have friends, I know people, you know, who are single and, you know, we are at this age now where, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say how old I'm turning this year. Okay, Sarah doesn't want me to talk about our, my age, but we are at that, that, that turning point where you go, 
wait a second, I thought I'd be married by this age. By, by the way, for me, I thought I'd have kids by this age. That's really hard for me. I don't want to be turning the next age that I'm turning and not be a mom. I'm terrified of that. We have this idea in our mind of where we're going to be at a certain age. And it's really hard to be like, what the fuck am I supposed to be doing to make God show the fuck up for me? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel like I'm sitting back and doing nothing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well. <sighs> but my friends who are single, they really are struggling with that. Well, here again, I think there's a spiritual concept that's worth thinking through pretty deeply, which is the whole idea of humility. And and that we are really only human and we really can only do so much. And, you know, the Buddhist, the Buddhists really see all of life as learning to live with detachment, with detaching. And I see it more, it's similar. I, I use the word humility that, that we can only tend the part of the garden we can reach. That's all we can do. And it's a lot. It's a lot. Right. There's a lot that you can do, but there's some that's out of reach. But it's not everything. And if you can find peace in your soul, tending the part of the garden you can reach, then that is is a beautiful and meaningful life. Not an easy life. You know, we often confuse the two. A, a meaningful life and an easy life are not the same thing. In fact, an easy life often lacks meaning. It is in life, though. You sort of like, when do you reach that point where you're like, I'm not, and I'm not even talking about your situation, but just in life situations, like when do you reach the point where you're like, okay, I can't fucking reach the garden. Like I'm never going to reach the garden. So mm-hmm. do I have to just accept that the garden is out of my reach? No, no. I call this standing knee deep in the river and, and, uh, dying of thirst. We're all standing knee deep in the river. You just got to drink. You can reach the garden. May not be the garden down the street. It's right in front of you. It's right freaking in front of you. Now get out there and tend to your relationships and root out toxicity and root out narcissism and root out arrogance in yourself and in others and just tend the part of the garden you can reach and you can reach a part of the garden. Our our couples therapist said, my job is that when you say, I'm dying of thirst, I need the water from here. My job is to say, but the water's over there. Mm. You're standing at a dry well. Do you know how many cultures have folk tales about someone who goes off on a journey to find buried treasure and they don't find it and they return home and discover it was buried under the kitchen stove Hmm. all along. Mm -hmm. And I think this is really true of our own lives. Mm -hmm. We're looking in the wrong place for freedom. We're looking in the wrong place. We're looking in the wrong place for a lot of things. For healing. For self-acceptance, for happiness. Like we're looking at the wrong things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this, these questions will help you. I mean, look how, look at the conversation that's just opened up here. 
you know, we've done 50 episodes of this podcast. It's the first time Sarah's ever been, you know, brought to tears and emotional over. No, I think I was brought to tears with him in our first episode. Oh, you were? I think so. Oh, I mean, well, I was crying inside. Oh, well, you're the only person who can bring her to tears. But it's just, it's such an interesting thing that just even having a conversation about the questions, mm. you know, really shakes you to your core and makes the, you know, a, a very real, authentic experience be had. Yes. And that's yes. what people and, need to be having. Everyone's life. You know, if someone, someone asked me, Steve, how do you do it? How do you sit with family after family to hear about and try to get to the essence of people you didn't even know? How have you done that more than a thousand times? Aren't you tired of it? And my answer is always the same, and it's the absolute truth. My answer is, if you ask the right questions, everyone's life is amazing. It's really a testament to you. I mean, like, at the end of the day, you're the person. I just want to, like, you know, pat you on the back for a second. You know, these these feelings that are coming up you're bringing them out on out in us the thing the questions you're asking the things you're saying the things that you bring up in your book i mean our listeners need to understand like you are very powerful like and i hope you know that and i know people tell you that all the time but you have a gift that like truly forces people to tap into this shit i mean it's a gift that you were given and and I really implore you guys to convert and join his temple <laughs> or, or buy the book. I mean, buy all the books. I mean, it's crazy. Like, do it all. Convert it, and buy the book. Yeah, do it all. I mean, like. I you, can't tell you how many people we, we heard from saying that they wanted to become Jewish after hearing the podcast. People who are. Oh, look, here's the truth. We're never seeking that hey, out. I'm a, I'm a conduit. I. I am deeply rooted in a tradition that, I mean, the rabbis, most, most Jewish law was written about 2,000 years ago, I'm generalizing. There is no, no aspect of the human condition that the sages didn't think through very deeply. People haven't changed since 2,000 years ago, and our problems haven't changed in 2,000 years. They're the same. And there is nothing that they didn't think through very deeply. And so that's my, that's the soil I'm rooted in. And uh, I, I appreciate what you said, it, it, and I really do. Um, but what I'm really trying to do is, is to um, make something accessible that's, that's already there. And, and, you know, that was sort of a joke, but sort of not when the editor asked how I came up with these questions. And I said, 35 years and 15 minutes. What I'm trying to layer on top of it, hopefully successfully, is a craft that I've practiced and refined over 35 years of when to ask what and how in order to help people tell their story. And live up to the story that they want to be their story. Listen. Exactly. 
I want to ask you, because I was on the phone with a girlfriend recently, and we were talking about this other person. And I said to her, I was like, I don't think she's a good person. Mm-hmm. And, and I sort of walked away from it. And I was like, well, wait, like what? I just want to ask you, what is a good person? That's one of the questions in the book. Yeah. I know. I saw that. And I was like, okay, we need to touch on this because, yeah. yeah. For me, again, it's one of those things. uh, You probably don't know who Justice Potter Stewart was. He was Supreme Court justice. And he was asked uh, to define obscenity for the Supreme Court in a pornography case. Was something pornographic and obscene or was it art? And so he was asked to describe obscenity. And his answer was, I can't or define it. And he said, I can't define it, but I know when I see it. And this is true of a good person. I'm going to try to define it, but bottom line is, you know, when you see it, you know, when you feel it. But a good person is a person who has a balance of humility and self-worth. A good person is a person who does not ascribe relative value to other people's lives, a person who believes that all people's lives matter, all people's lives are important, and so is that person's. Sort of, I am important, and everyone else is just as important. Mm -hmm. That's a good person. Mm -hmm. A good person is a mensch, another word hard to define, but a mensch means like a humane human being. No, with, empa- with empathy. Let's ask the opposite question. What is evil? What is an evil person? Because when you know what something, what good is not, then you know what good is. Right? You can define something by what it's not. In, in Latin, this is called via negationis, by way of the negative. Like, you can know what God is by deciding what God is not. God is not evil. God is not capricious. Right? So... Let's look at what, what is not a good person. A not good person, an evil person, evil itself, is the force that objectifies others, objectifies them, treats them like objects, not like unique, valuable human beings. So, What is a good person then? A good person is a person who relates to others as people. Who understands that if you prick us, we all bleed. Mm -hmm. What is your advice to people that are feeling lonely? Like a handful of people wrote in saying, I'm so lonely. Like, how do you... How do you rise above that? How do you heal that? How do you, nobody wants to be lonely. The, uh, the sages of the Talmud say the prisoner cannot free himself. That's such a powerful idea. When we feel locked in, imprisoned, we have to reach out, reach out. And you know something? This, this was a big one for me after my car accident and the chronic pain and the surgery. I couldn't walk for a few months and I became very dependent in a way I never had been before. And I was, I was depressed. 
No one suffers pain better alone. No one ever suffers better alone. So do you have the courage and the humility to reach out in the midst of your suffering? As if you do, very often, you will find there are others there who will reach back and help lift you from your suffering. episode allison just said she's like this is my favorite episode that we've ever done number one um she wanted me to ask um is there a 13th question that's not in the book that's you know and if not then you know there were there were 17 original questions and you know I, I think Penguin Random House is an incredible publisher, but all publishers want something that makes intuitive sense quickly for the potential buyer of the book. So somehow 12 questions sounded better than 17. <laughs> right? So we, we had to whittle it down um, to 12. Uh, and and so there were there were a bunch that I would have asked if I had to choose. A 13th, I would choose one of two. One is more of a prompt that I think would open people up in an interesting way, which is, what do you believe? What do you believe? I think if if people would sit down and actually start with these two words, I believe something quite profound will follow. And the other one I would ask is, what is faith? Because I think it gets to, Aaron, your, your question about like, uh, what's God's will and what's human agency and uh, where is it all, this partnership? And I would, I'm interested in faith. I see we have another question from the audience. Yes, we yeah, do. Chelsea, did you have an answer for what is faith? Uh, do you have a question? Uh, faith is when you have faith in somebody, it's like when you believe in somebody, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or when you have faith in yourself. Yes. <clears throat> yes. If you, if, if you can have faith in yourself, then you can get through anything, really. Mm-hmm. I have half of faith in myself. You do? You have half. half. Yeah. Faith. Why not? Where, full? where do you think you got that? Well, um, wait. What does he mean? Where do I think? Well, I... why do you only have half faith and not full faith? Because some things I don't want to do, even though people force me to do it, I don't want to do oh, it, and I don't faith and freedom. Myself. <laughs> right. I don't believe in myself to do those things. You don't believe in yourself to do what things? The things that people tell me to do that I want to do, but I just can't because I'm too scared to. Like I'm scared of fireworks, and I can't stay. And just, I just can't be not scared of them because I'm scared. You know, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with you. We're all afraid of things, and that's our bodies and our minds telling us not to do them. Yep. That's true. It's okay to be scared of things. 
If your worst yeah. offense in this world is that you can't watch fireworks, I think you're going to be having a good life. I'm saying. <laughs> hey, can, I ask, can I ask you a question? Oh, yeah. Did the tooth fairy come to your house when you lost those teeth? <laughs> She's missing quite a lot of teeth. In the I know. That's why I'm wondering. Did the tooth fairy visit? And what did the tooth fairy do? She took my note that I gave her and um, she got me teeth. She, did she leave anything under the pillow? Mm, money. Money. And now at your house, in your neighborhood... Does the tooth fairy in your neighborhood leave the teeth or take the teeth? Take the teeth. Takes the teeth. And what do you think the tooth fairy does with all those teeth? Puts them in her sack and brings them to the fairy world. Brings them to the fairy world. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, you want to hear my I idea? Like, I feel like fairies are mm -hmm. bigger than they are because... They're, our teeth are pretty big for little small fairies. Or maybe they're just magic and they put the teeth inside themselves and then they take them out. By yeah. I mean, a fairy probably could do that, right? Mm -hmm. You wanted to hear my idea? Sure. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's true or not because no one knows. But I think just maybe that the fairy takes all those teeth and gives them to all the new babies who are going to be born. <gasps> oh, and then there's a baby being born with your teeth right now. <gasps> You like, never know, right? They have a lot of teeth to babies. I but but the babies get teeth from inside their gums. How can they I know? But the you know, a fairy can I, do anything. Maybe right? the maybe the teeth fairy um put at fire hospitals. They put teeth inside the place where people lose teeth get teeth. Oh, and that's they give a good you money for being for being um. For being nice to the people who lost their teeth, who get their teeth, right, you basically but they have to be teeth. the same age, and they oh, the teeth got it. So you're like a tooth donor. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Wait, my mom can't lose teeth. It's only for kids. Mm -hmm. so. Oh, got it. Got because it. Because kids. Are That's very interesting. I always find that question to lead to an interesting I, conversation. I'm one of the I, few people. I, mommy's one of the few people in LA I, that has her natural teeth. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> my teeth, my my teeth are not yes. growing in. I lost, oh, they will. I lost them like a week ago, but they're not growing. Yeah, in. they'll grow in. How many people do you know who never had teeth growing? My friend Alden. <laughs> All right, Josie, book an appointment with wait, Rabbi Leader. You know what wait, I mean? You're really hogging our. Wait, Mama, wait. Yeah, last last thing, Josie. Last thing. Okay. Yes. I'm going to Disneyland today with my friend Desiree, and I'm going to see the fireworks go over the castle. Boom, bye. Bye. Boom. Nice talking to you. Boom. Mic drop. Mic drop. Mic drop. Uh, all right. Uh, well, uh, all right. Uh, may I compliment the two of you for a moment? Yes. Yeah. Uh, when our first podcast together aired, I, I was amazed at how you enabled this kind of thinking to reach a generation I could never, ever otherwise reach. And I don't know if you fully appreciate the role you play in exposing an entire generation to the, the kinds of issues that are deep inside all of us, but at that age often remain kind of locked in the basement sort of pounding on the basement ceiling with a broomstick, you know, but we don't quite know. Um, 
how they animate us and, and, and affect us. So you, you're doing, you're rabbis, you know, rabbi is a Hebrew word that means teacher. That's all it is. And I, I'm really amazed at how you've used your platform uh, to make people's lives better because you could very easily have used it simply, you know, to sell clothes, but, but you don't. And, and I don't mean to be patronizing. So I hope you take this in the spirit in which I intend it, which is um, when I tell you, I'm really proud of you. Oh, I really am. You. I love him. That's so sweet. Thank you. That's so sweet. I think for us, we just like, we're students. Like we're not, a, we're not approaching this podcast as like, we know so much. And so we're here to like teach you. We are the students. We have so much to learn and we're so desperate to grow that that is why we are having people on who can help us in that journey. And while helping us help everyone else, you know, mm -hmm. that's, and just like, I don't think trying to push ourselves yeah, so that other people can push themselves and have uncomfortable conversations that are hard for us to have sometimes, you yeah. know, it's, it's hard because you have to face questions you don't always want to ask. And, and it's been, it's been a really surprising and wonderful thing for us to connect with as many people as we are this way and, and have vulnerable conversations. Cause that's something we've always strived to do is to, to be comfortable being more vulnerable. And this has really helped us. But honestly, like the response to you has nothing to do with us, the response to you. And like, I want to take in your compliment. Thank you. But like, I hope you take in your compliment that the response we were the facilitators in that conversation and everyone needs to have rabbi leader in their life. And mm -hmm. that is why I will force you to do a podcast. <laughs> we need to buy your books. We need to convert and join the temple, all the things. <laughs> but like, I am not Jewish. I am, I was raised Christian. I am not Jewish. I don't have plans to convert, but I want you to be my teacher. And I think that's, that's, this is not just a, 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 a Judaism, uh, do you, you know what I'm saying? No, not at all. Not so at all. This is a life. it doesn't speak to the larger, um, challenge of being a human being, a humane human being, then it speaks to nothing at all. Well, I'm happy to share him with you. Well, I probably would convert if it wasn't like a whole explanation of why, you know, I guess like there's a, there really is a part of me that like really does like want to convert and be a part of your world. And well, here's and what I think. And what I tell people is that, you know, going through the conversion class is such an amazing experience and you do not have to convert at the end of it. It is a choice at the end of the day. And by the way, it's a choice that is two parts. They choose to accept you. You choose to convert. And at the end of the class, you can just say, you know what? I was here to learn and I'm not ready yet. Or the teacher says to you, the rabbi says to you, you, not that we don't want you, but <laughs> they're like, we're good. But they might say, you don't seem ready. Yeah, the gene pool's fine. Yeah, we're good. We don't need you to be procreating. You're not Jews. really adding value. No, but they might say, you don't seem ready, right? And yeah. so it's like, you don't have to actually convert and become Jewish and raise your kids Jewish just to go through the, cl the class and, and learn about it. Yeah. It's just fascinating. Yeah. So... All right, uh, Rabbi Leader. Well, we... Uh, right. I love you both. Really we love, love you. We really love you. We're so grateful to have this second conversation. We're going to need to get part three on the books now because you're very busy. Thank you right, so, right. so, so much, Rabbi Leader. Thank you, Rabbi Bye -bye. Leader. Bye-bye. If you like this podcast, leave a rating and review. This podcast is executive produced by... Can you not use that voice?
I'm sorry, I'm trying to sound... Yeah, but you don't need to make it sexy. This podcast is executive produced by... Can you... Do you have a normal voice? Yeah. Aaron Foster, Sarah Foster, and Allison Bresnick. I'll take over. Our Our associate associate producer is Montana McBearney. Our audio engineer is Josh Windish. This show is hosted by Simplecast. See, that didn't sound nice. That sounded great.